Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. On today's show, I have the honor of interviewing Aaron Benzerhem. Aaron is Bernardo Faria's first black belt, having earned his previous black belt from Alliance Marcelo Garcia Association. Aaron is a multiple-time fight twin pro veteran and winner, multiple-time IBJJF medalist, and has competed in several tournaments, winning and making the podium in almost all of them. He has a fantastic YouTube channel teaching Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it is clear he is driven by a passion to spread the art that helped him shape his life. He's a young and ambitious entrepreneur and newlywed who has practiced several other martial arts, including Muay Thai, Jeet Kune Do, boxing, and wrestling. He was an instructor at the Bernardo Faria Academy. He's also the first employee hired by BJJ Fanatics, where his role as senior product manager keeps him busy at present. This is one of those rare 27 as of this recording, up-and-coming instructors that I akin to a fantastic growth stock opportunity, meaning if I could put money on him to compound in value, I would. Once you see Aaron's YouTube channel, you'll see why. He has an approachable, yet highly technical, yet easily digestible way of teaching BJJ that checks all those boxes, which is a rarity for someone with so much runway left. I can see why Bernardo Faria decided to not only coach and mentor him, but to award Aaron his very first black belt. What a tremendous honor. Aaron is refreshingly candid, surprisingly self-aware, an absolute gentleman, and a class act. Make sure to check out his two instructionals on the leg drag and the half butterfly on BJJ Fanatics. And make sure to check out his amazing YouTube channel with over a year's worth of highly produced content. It's quality stuff. Also check out Aaron and his wife Bruna's dog training company, Rise Canine Dog Training, that not only does all sorts of dog training, but also trains worst case scenario dogs on their last strike. It's amazing stuff at risecaninetraining.com. Some housekeeping notes. We recorded this before the infamous Gordon Ryan and Andre Galval slap heard around the world, so it's almost spooky how Aaron mentions this beef. <laughs> also, just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And become a patron by clicking support at the anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt webpage. Also like our Facebook page and check us out on, on the socials by searching for Forever White Belt. And with that, I give you Aaron Benzerhem. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am Adolfo Fronda with a very special guest, and you are? My name is Aaron Benzerhem. Aaron, great to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. Yeah, I'm glad to get to talk to you. The way I found about you, Aaron, was via YouTube. You got quite a presence there. Obviously, the algorithm probably saw me looking at some Bernardo Faria stuff, and, and we can talk about that association soon. And then I just went down the rabbit hole of your content. You've been producing content on YouTube for, what, over a year now? Over yeah, it's year? just over a year now. And uh, it's funny you mentioned Bernardo right off the bat because, you know, I just got my black belt from Bernardo. I'm actually his first black belt. And he's the one who pushed right. me to start a YouTube channel. I was an instructor at a school while I still technically am for the last three years. And uh, I actually used to train in Florida at a Marcelo Garcia Association. And I was given my brown belt through my old coach, Con Ying and Marcelo Garcia. Yeah. And they both knew Bernardo. And so when he was opening a school, I had been working for him at BJJ Fanatics for about two years. And he offered me the opportunity to come up and teach. And so I was like, okay, that sounds like a great opportunity. I absolutely mm -hmm. love jujitsu. I trained full time. So I went and then he started to see me teach and he, he gave me a lot of confidence because being somebody of his stature, you know, a five time black belt world champion, he was like, Aaron, you're a really good instructor. You need to, you need to start a YouTube. And so at yeah. the time I was kind of bewildered. I was like, start a YouTube me, you know, I'm a competitor. I've always competed at, at high levels. I've done well. Mm -hmm. 
but I'm not, you know, a world champion by any means. I compete because I love it and I train like a competitor. And like I said, I've had good results, but I haven't won the worlds or anything crazy. So, so for Bernardo to tell me that, I was like, you really believe in me, huh? And so he was like, yeah, you should definitely start a YouTube. I think people would, would really like to see what you have to share. So because of him, I started YouTube and it took me a while to really build the confidence to do it and had it now just over a year and a half. That's amazing. You know, that's really great that you have that kind of self-awareness too, in terms of like you were saying, you know, I may not be the elite level, whatever competitor. At the same time, this, I don't know if I want to call it serendipitous, but this path that you've had in terms of like the academies that you've been to and the instructors that you've had and, and sort of where you are now becoming Bernardo's first black belt and instructor at such a great academy. It's quite awe-inspiring there. Yeah, you know, training at Bernardo's has been the greatest experience in my life. And it's funny because I think it's inspirational to lower belts to, to hear a higher belt say this. It's weird for me to even call myself a black belt because it's so recently. But to hear a black belt okay. say this, I think I progressed the most at Brown Belt because I had always trained at a smaller academy and we had a great mm -hmm. group of guys. And like I said, I competed in IBJJFs. I medaled at plenty. I, I did fight to wins. But it wasn't until Brown Belt that I got to train with world-class tier one athletes. I'm talking about the Bernardos of the world, my my friend and also an instructor, Giancarlo Bedoni, Mateus Gonzaga, Marcos Tinoco. We had yeah. Craig Jones pop in. I got to roll with Craig Jones, roll with Gordon mm -hmm. Ryan. And being that BJ Fanatics is there, I had the opportunity to be immersed in that community. I met John Danaher. I got to speak wow. with them and I exchange ideas and I got to train with everybody. And I really got to see like, this is the caliber. And I think that's when I became more self-aware that I know, you know, I consider myself a world-class jujitsu guy, but I know there's certain tiers to this mm -hmm. and to see what the, the tier one, the best guys that are winning the worlds is doing. It's, it's humbling. And it's like, okay, you got to keep stepping up. And so I've made my most progression in the last three years as a brown belt. And even still as a black belt, I think I'm going to look back in a year or two and say, I'm still progressing at that level because I'm I'm still trying to achieve that. I'm only 27 years old. I know I have a good three years to compete and try to win a black belt. And it's humbling to be in this position where I feel like a lot of gratitude for the fact that I've increased my skill level, my awareness, my competitive ability, my instruction so much as a brown belt. And for, for lower belts, you always get told you make the most strides from white to blue because you go from knowing nothing to knowing something. But I, you know, I would disagree. I think that depending on your journey, it's going to differentiate from person to person. But coming from somebody who's now black belt, looking back, I mean, the three years I've spent at Bernardo's have been incredible and it's taken my jujitsu to to the next level by a lot now translating so, that into competition is a different story i want to touch on that the very point you brought up there about now that you're a newly minted black belt now that brown belt is so close in that rear view mirror for you and that you can reflect on that so much what kind of tips do you give for those freshly minted brown belts or those brown belts that are mid or towards the endish of their journey there what sort of insight can you provide them from your own experiences some of which you've already sort of illustrated yeah, you know, brown belt for me was actually the toughest belt, ironically. I've been training 11 years, and I was a brown belt for exactly three years, actually. And for me, it was, like I said, it was the, it was when I took the biggest step in my journey to go for it completely. It was when my now wife and I, at the time, she was just my girlfriend, packed up everything from Florida, moved to Boston, and it's cold there, so it was a big change, and said, hey, let's go all in. You know, I'm training like a, a pro athlete, so let's see what I can do if I commit myself fully. So let's teach full time. Let's manage the academy, grow my relationship with Bernardo and BJ Fanatics and also train. And so when I had the ability to do that, it was the toughest belt because there was a little bit of an awakening where I was like, okay, I'm not to sound conceited. I was like, I'm really good. I'm technically sound, but I'm missing something. You know, I need to competitively get to the next level, whether it was mentality 
cardio or all of the above, I realized training with those best guys, those elite guys that I needed to get better. And simultaneously while trying to upkeep that type of regimen with better guys, and I'm a light feather, so bigger guys as well, I suffered a lot of injuries. You know, I did the open weight at a tournament. I got to the finals after three tough matches. I got against a guy who was 220 and he popped my MCL. And I had, I think it's like a type two tear on my MCL. It was like eight weeks off. Then I came back. I trained more. I was training hard for Boston Open. I popped my foot three different times prior to there. And my foot was like destroyed. I didn't want to show it. I managed to get to the finals at Boston Open. It was my first IBJJF tournament as a Brown. And uh, I got foot locked in the finals. And oh. I was really down on myself. And I had to sit out because he like, dis- it was against actually Junie Ocasio, yeah. who's really yeah. good now. He yes. destroyed my foot. Oh, and my then uh, I took time off there. And then I came back and I hurt my low back. So it was like, it was discouraging because I just kept getting injured. And I was like, man, maybe I'm not cut out for this. A lot mm. of doubts came into my mind. And the the primary doubt was maybe I'm just a hobbyist. Maybe I don't want to do this as hard as I think I do, but I just kept pushing through. And that's my advice to people. Even if it's your hardest belt or your easiest on your bad days, just keep pushing through. Even when I was injured, I went to the academy. I taught as best that I could or I demonstrated technique using two different people. And then I explained it or I would just watch the classes. And it gave me the ability to just really almost rediscover my passion. And every time I would start to doubt myself, like maybe this isn't for me, I would just think about where I was and what I did to get there. And I was like, no, you know, I love this stuff. Like, you know, the injuries are are par for the course. I'll take them. Maybe I've had more than others, but I'll take them and it's fine. And just kept pushing through, kept pushing through. I had some minor health issues due to a jujitsu injury. I broke my nose as a purple belt and I had always had like a severely deviated septum. And this is actually the first time I disclosed this, unless you've trained with me and you're one of my partners, I talked about it. It ended up leading to like a chronic sinusitis, which led to like chronic chest congestion. And I was having these health issues all because my nose when they took the x-ray, they were like, your, your cartilage is destroyed. So you wow. need surgery. And I just kept wow. pushing the surgery back. I kept pushing it back. And finally, as a brown belt, I had no choice but to get the surgery because it was getting so bad. So I had surgery on that. And then I came back. Wow. So like it was ups and downs, ups and downs. But just looking hindsight is twenty twenty. I wouldn't have done it any other way. It's taught me so much. You know, fortunately, I'm in good health. I'm training regularly again for the last few months. COVID happened. That was another thing. Training through COVID when it first hit and we couldn't train. I was super discouraged. So I was like, man, with these injuries, with this surgery, with everything going on now, this happens. I was like, man, I'm never going to get my black belt. I'm never going to progress, you know, and look, everything's back to normal. So all that self-doubt was just me just psyching myself out. Gosh, so much to unpack there. So many questions I want to ask you, uh, one of which is you're teaching evolution as well, but you brought up the point of being a featherweight, a lighter person, and I'm a smaller person. And I always gravitate to people like that because (laughs) it's like Rogan said, if you want to learn, it's kind of a generalization, find yourself the small black belt and you're going to learn the technical aspect of jujitsu in a superior manner is sort of the general consensus there. But I'm always interested because of all those type of things, like you're, you're going to get injured. You're going to have to work with heavier, bigger people. So what is your body type? What's your height and weight? Yeah, so I'm 5'11". I like to call it six foot, but 5'11 is the truth. And uh, I compete at light feather. Predominantly, I've competed at light feather. I've done feather once or twice in IBJJF, but predominantly it's light feather, which is 137 pounds without the gi. So I did worlds as a purple. I was light feather, Boston open, uh, you know, where I got second light feather, fight to wins 139 every tournament i've done it's typically 139 at the world pro trials which i did well in unfortunately i didn't medal as a purple i actually cut all the way to 132 oh, and at, at 511 
we're talking about a twig here, right? Yeah. I have no shame in saying it. People that see me, they don't believe it. But I am, you know, I guess you call it, I think it's an ectomorph. Like I can definitely shed the weight and my walking around weight is 145. So it's, it's not a severe cut. I actually don't like to cut weight. If I can diet it off, I'd rather do that. And typically when I go to compete, I do eight weeks of dieting. I just lower my carbohydrate intake and I get to walking around at 138, 139. And it's mm-hmm. super simple. So being that weight is a blessing and a curse because I do agree with you that you might have a predisposition to applying a more technical aspect of jujitsu because you might be forced to do so. You can't really get away with your strength. And I think it's a curse because when training, you're going to be forced to train with heavier guys. And I think that you may be more inclined to get injured just because physics is inevitable. If I'm 138 pounds and I'm rolling with Bernardo, who could be anywhere from 220 to 240, or my friend Giancarlo, who's a heavyweight, who's 200, 210, I physically have to just expose myself more and utilize much more strength just to do basic movements because I'm just bearing more weight and I'm smaller. So again, there's benefits where you're faster, you're lighter, you might be more technical, but there's also the chance that you might take on more injury in doing so because again, it's just physics. If somebody's on top of me, for example, let's go to Bernardo. If he's on top of me in the mount, which is all the time, and I'm giving everything I can to upa him. You think about the amount of strength I'm trying to utilize on my low back and my hips. I always tell students, jujitsu is very unique in the sense that you're going to consistently try to put up weight that you have no business attempting. Imagine (laughs) you're on a bench machine, you're 140 pounds and you put 400 on the bench and you just hold it there. You're just trying to push, push. It's not going to happen. That's how Mm -hmm. I feel when a big, big, big guy like Bernardo, who's world-class is on top of me. I'm trying, but I'm not making any progress. And so that's when I think you feel more sore, you get more injured. But again, it's a blessing and a curse because speed kills too. So if you have the knowledge and you know you roll with somebody who might be less experienced or just might not be as quick or athletic, you're definitely going to have a huge advantage there. So I have a very flowy style of jiu-jitsu where I'm just consistently trying to utilize the strength that I have, which is speed, timing, technique, et cetera. What do you say to those people that and there's the argument that body type matters or body type doesn't matter? I think body type matters. I think weight matters. The simple reaction I have to that is always, if weight didn't matter, why is there weight classes? And if you look statistically at the open weights, why do the heavier people typically win at the bigger tournaments? There's exceptions, right? You see the Mia brothers, Mikey, and other prominent lightweight competitors win at the more Mm. smaller opens. But at the world, at black belt, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who's, you know, under 185 win the world's open Mm. weight as a black belt. I'm probably mistaken. It's probably happened. But for the most part, you know, the names that come to mind are the Hadolfo Vieres, the Bernardo Frias, the Buchechas, the Gordon Ryans. They're all bigger guys. And that's fine because I know a lot of them. They're extremely technical and extremely mm-hmm. amazing. But they're also, you know, bigger, stronger guys. So let's go to your teaching evolution. You brought that up now that you're a black belt and how Bernardo identified someone who has the potential or was already a good instructor. How did you develop that? Because I do pick up on that. Obviously, people gravitate via your YouTube videos as well. I'm like, wow, this guy's an effective instructor and he communicates. He draws you in in a way. So how did that evolve? And how do you keep that sword sharp as well? So I teach a lot. You know, I teach instructionals for BJ Fanatics. I teach classes and I teach on my YouTube. So you definitely have to keep teaching to keep improving. I also think that for the most part, there's exceptions to the rule. And the first one that comes to mind is John Danaher. But I think for the most part with jujitsu, it's good to keep training. You don't need to be training like a world champion full time, but I think it's good to exercise your techniques on a day-to-day basis or every other day to continuously train and improve on on what you're trying to teach. Because for me, 
I think that the ability to teach, if I had to self-reflect, comes from the ability to understand what I'm feeling when I roll. I think that I, I know what is making a technique effective and what isn't when I roll. I think that's when I best start to understand it. And when I teach it and start to translate the information, I think that the questions that people ask me also help to understand from somebody else's perspective. And I've been fortunate to have been teaching since I was a purple belt for, so that's about six years or seven years. And I had a very good instructor, Khan Ying, who's a Marcel Garcia black belt, who is one of, if not the best instructors I've ever heard at translating information. He's a good example of a guy who's more recreational. He's an older guy. He's in his forties now, but he might not go and beat up a world champion, but he can translate information really well. And so seeing him, I was inspired that he had that skill set. You know, we would roll and he would always tell me when I, cause I was like 22. 23 blue purple hothead he was like you're gonna start tapping me soon and i was like no i'm not he's like no you're gonna start tapping me and so in seeing that i was very interested because he was so confident in his ability to teach that he he would always tap to his students because he knew he's like people aren't going to leave my school because they can beat me up i'm a good instructor and people come here because of the way that i translate information that was inspiring for me to see because i was like that's a skill and that's an asset that people will gravitate towards. So I always wanted to be a good teacher. So I asked him as a purple, I said, can I start to teach? I, I want to learn. And so he would let me and, and he would give me pointers. And again, seeing what the questions my students asked always gave me a better perspective of what I needed to translate. Because I think a fundamental flaw in instruction is that people only see things through their own eyes. And sometimes you are going to have a different perspective or something's going to come easier or harder to you than it is to somebody else. And so to hear what your students have to say is going to put you in their shoes. You know, whether it be my wife, who's a girl and she's smaller, she's 115 pounds or a big guy who might have a different approach on doing something. It's going to give me the ability to, to put myself in their shoes and think about what's going on. And I think that that helps me. I always think about, you know, my first day in jujitsu when I was 15 years old, I had been doing boxing. Muay Thai, a ton of MMA stuff, hothead 15 year old walked into a jiu-jitsu gym and the instructor was at purple belt. I asked him to roll. I also had some wrestling experience and he literally just grabbed my wrist, put his feet on my hips, threw me in the air and put me in an arm bar. So like a helicopter arm bar, two mm -hmm. seconds. To this day, I've never forgot the feeling I had leaving that gym. I had no idea what happened. I mean, it was like Chinese to me. I had no clue. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't even begin to try to understand. And so I think of that moment when I teach and I'm like, some of these people, even if they're higher belts, may have no idea what I'm saying. So I really need to find a way to make it understandable and to make it simple for them. And so that's that's what I'm always trying to do. I treat everybody like they might not have the best understanding and I try to give them the core concepts and principles that can help them. Have you taught children as well? Yeah, I was the main kids instructor at Bernardo's for about a year. That was another thing that was really helpful to be honest because I tend to, I don't want to sound like conceited. I, the way that I tend to translate information when I teach it, I think that it's better for an adult. It's more catered towards an adult's vocabulary. So when I had to teach kids, I had to start to translate information more through movement. So it helped my in-person training. It might not be a skill that's as well reflected on instructionals or on YouTube, but if you take a class with me, I'm always going towards students and I can see when they're struggling with little things and I've gotten better at understanding what's going on and helping them physically versus verbally. Because with kids, a lot of it is telling them, hey, right when they're drilling it, you've got to grab the gi here. Look how I'm grabbing it. Or you got to put your foot here and this is why. And I think that that helped me a lot there because they just don't have as good of an understanding. If you're talking about three, four, five-year-olds too, I mean, you can only expect so much from them. So you, to, to teach them as best you can, a lot of it is, is physically demonstrating.
Walk me through day one, I'm walking into the academy, day one white belt. What can I expect? Give me like the virtual day in your academy. So I remember when I walked in day one, I thought I was Mr. Cool. And I was like mm -hmm. a sophomore in high school. I had a bad habit of fighting, to be honest. And I just wanted to go in there and, and see how I could do with people. And I think that day one is going to differentiate on a case by case basis, because there's so many personalities. And that's the beauty of jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many mm -hmm. different people that, that go into jujitsu. And so if you are somebody who was like me, who was like a hothead or, or somebody who just who's very athletic and, and thinks that they're going to be able to perform on day one, the feelings going to be shock, right? The feelings mm -hmm. going to be like, oh my goodness, I can't even believe my inability to perform. And you're going to be really discouraged. It's mm -hmm. going to take a lot to come back because you have to put yourself in a position where you know you're going to be inferior to people in that certain setting, right? Inferior mm -hmm. in a sense of he's going to beat me up and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think you kill the ego for the most part, or you develop that martial arts ego. Because I, I think the saying in jujitsu that there's no ego in it is completely <laughs> untrue. <laughs> yes. I think it, it helps humble people, but there's totally ego for sure. Yeah, you know, everybody has a little bit and, and it can be healthy, right? Mm -hmm. But initially you lose a lot of that, right? You become humble and you understand like, oh my God, this person is just much more skilled than me. And then you have people who are like my wife, right? I talked to her about it. She's a blue belt. And I asked her, you know, because I never wanted to push her to train because I didn't want her to do it for me. I wanted her to do it for herself. So I never asked her to come to class. I would wow. say, hey, do you ever think about training? And she's like, oh, maybe. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, when you're ready. And so I would just leave and every day. And she was like, you know, I want to try it. And so she went in. And that day I, I talked to her. I was like, how'd it feel? You know, how was it? And she's like, really scary. I was petrified. She's like, it's a sport that's predominantly men and I'm a weak young girl. And I just felt like I had no business being there, but mm. that quickly changed as she kept coming back. There was a desire to keep coming back. And I think the desire for her was seeing other girls that mm -hmm. train. I know we had a really good, a girl who's a brown belt now. Her name's Deanna. Shout out to Deanna. And she's always helped the women. She used to run a women's class at Marcelo Garcia Gainesville Association. And seeing her was inspiring to somebody like my wife because she saw that she could hold her own with men. And so seeing is believing. And she was like, okay, I can do this if I just put my mind to it. And so ultimately, I think everybody will have their own experience. I think some of the common emotions that we'll see across the board are fear, you know, maybe insecurity, maybe discouragement. Those are all natural. And I think that's why jujitsu tends to attract a certain personality type that is very uh, ambitious because they want to continue to get better until they're in a position where they feel comfortable and they can help the next person. And I think that's also why the community is so strong because everybody is scarred by those first days, even mm. your first white belt, you know, and white belts are the best thing to jujitsu because if they're not there, the, the sport doesn't grow. So as a community, it's important to motivate them and know that every upper belt that they see was once in their shoes. You know, maybe it was a little easier for this guy or that guy, but everybody got tapped, everybody got beat up. And that's just par for the course with jujitsu. And so, like I said, everyone will be different with how they approach it, but the common denominators will probably be discouragement, nerves, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of discomfort, which is all healthy. It's all healthy. Touching upon the academy and your philosophy on academies, what makes great academies? I'd say that the main thing is community. I think it's really important for the academy that you train at to feel like, I don't want to say family. You want it to feel like family, but just friendship is enough, right? It doesn't, mm -hmm. you don't need to go there and everybody be best friends, but you want it to be a happy place. I've always told people, if you're not happy training, then don't train. 
if it doesn't make you happy, then you shouldn't do it. But as long as you are happy going there and it's and it's an escape, and even if you're a, a hobbyist or a full-time competitor, you want to be happy with what you're doing. And I think that that's so important in jiu-jitsu because when you have an academy that isn't very welcoming or that you're not happy to go to, it's really discouraging and it can really drop people off. So I know that the, the main academies that I've trained at, I've been really fortunate that the instructors, the teammates, the training partners have all been super nice people. They're all super helpful. And there's a big, big family connection where everybody's helping each other. And I think that that, that's mainly the most important thing I look for in a school, just people helping people on a day to day basis, no bullying, no ego, as as little ego as you can have, because again, there's always ego in jujitsu, but it's healthy ego. I think that's the most important thing. You touched on it a bit, but can you talk about, number one, how'd you even begin or even connect with Bernardo? Can you talk about that relationship and how that has evolved? I used to have a company called The Jiu-Jitsu, which is, it, we still have a Facebook with like 25,000 likes or something, but I'm not active on it at all. And my brother and I actually started, I have an older brother. He doesn't train, but he was really interested in the idea of starting a business. This was in 2012 that we had that. And what we used to do was we used to interview prominent competitors. So we had interviews with guys like Kyle Terra. I had interviewed Budo Jake, Rafael Lovato Jr. And this was all as I was a white and blue belt. And the company grew actually really well. We made some merchandise off of it. And we actually did very well for an 18-year-old kid and his brother. We were doing great. Unfortunately, as most young adults would have done, we didn't keep up on it. You know, we weren't smart business people. We just thought it was free money almost. And, you know, we didn't do well. So we kind of put it to the back burner. I focused on training full time. My brother went his own way. And three years later, I had met my now wife, I think I was 21 at the time or 20. And, you know, we were talking and I, I showed her the old stuff. I was trying to show off a little bit. I was like, yeah, I used to have this company. And uh, she's like, you should start it back up. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And my old jujitsu coach Khan was there. and They were both pushing me like start it back up. And my old jujitsu coach was like, you know, Bernardo Faria has been really active because he just started his own company called BJ Fanatics. And he was like, you should interview him and start with that because that would be a big interview. So I was like, okay, I'll reach out to him. If he takes it, I'll start it back up. So I reached out to Bernardo and he said, yes, let's do it. So I, I like quickly revamped the website and I started talking to Bernardo. At the time, I had a small business called Gainesville Digital Agency where I was freelancing web design, web development, SEO work, Facebook marketing and stuff like that for people in my town of Gainesville. So Bernardo and I's interview lasted 30 minutes, but our phone call lasted two hours and he had just started his business and he was really into who I was. He was like, man, that's cool that you had a business. How'd you do it? And we started talking and he was like, oh, you have this other one. You have experience in this and that you do jujitsu. He was like, why don't you uh, do some work for BJ Fanatics? Why don't you start writing some blogs and helping us a little with SEO? And so I did. And that was six years ago. And I've never yeah. looked back. I've grown substantially with the company. So I'm actually the product manager for BJ Fanatics, and I do a lot of the operations. I think I'm their longest employee because when they started, it was just wow. him and Michael. And it just one thing led to another. And after two and a half years with them, like I said, he asked me to move there, get closer to BJ Fanatics. He knew that I well, was a teacher because my old coach was like, he's a great teacher. You should utilize him. So again, my old coach, Khan, really helped me. And so, yeah, I moved up to Massachusetts. My girlfriend was at the time willing and... We've ever since just continued to grow with each other and our friendship is better than ever. And it's just, it's been a great time. It's, it's been amazing to see not only his work ethic on the mat, 
Because when I started training with him, he had kind of retired. And just that work ethic translated to business. And Bernardo, uh, a lot of people don't know this. He's a great businessman. He's, he's a great person. I think a lot of people assume that. Everything you see is what you get. I've been great friends with him for six years now. I mean, we hang out all the time. And he's been more than a coach to me. Obviously, he's been a coach in jiu-jitsu. But to be honest, he's affected my life more off the mat than he has on the mat. I mean, he's helped me grow so much in my career. And him and his business partner, Michael Zenga, have given me huge opportunities. And he's just such a nice person. Like he, he really is such a nice person. So I, I owe a lot to him. And I look up to him so much. What do you think you're most known for in terms of your game? On YouTube and in my instructionals, it's probably half butterfly guard, single leg X, X guard, and then leg drags for passing. At my academy, it's probably a lot of the same. But a lot of people tell me that I have a very fluid style. One of my great training partners is a black belt. And he does well at adult Rodrigo always says I have a finesse game. He's like, you're Mr. Finesse. And so that's what they call me there. And I think mm -hmm. that that comes from the fact that typically I'm relying on, I think one of the core concepts for my passing game is that mobility is my best friend. So I'm constantly using mobility to catch people. I very rarely am applying pressure. Like typically if I pass the guard, I'm going knee on belly, north, south, side to side, mount, dismount, and trying to move around you until you expose yourself. And and that just comes from the fact that being my weight, when I'm holding somebody down in side control, I can't really pry a submission if they're bigger, right? I can't force the wrist to the mat and go for the Americana or the Kimura. I have to expose them so that they expose themselves. So I have to use the mobility so that they post and now their arms already, you know, detached from their body and now I can capitalize. So that, that finesse style translates to my bottom game as well, because I'm consistently trying to use my opponent's momentum against them. So I have a very timing-based game. And so a lot of people that roll with me say it feels effortless when I do things because I'm just attempting to use as much of my finesse, I guess you could say, as possible. <laughs> and that just comes from being a lighter person. You know, I've rolled with people who have way more finesse than me, like Bruno Malfacini. And Bruno made me feel like air, and I had no idea how he did it. I was like, oh my wow. God, this guy's 120 pounds. So <laughs> th those people inspire me a lot. So I guess conversely to that question, then what, what aspects of your game do you think you specialize in that people typically don't associate you with? One of the things that I do a lot is it's a heavy butterfly guard. And I think that people see me and mm -hmm. assume that I might want to play a more inverted daily heave reverse daily heave guard, and then use those to get the single leg X or X mm -hmm. or some of the positions I like a lot. But predominantly, I'm getting to everywhere I want to be from bottom from butterfly guard. That's my A game. If you see me playing daily heave or reverse daily heave, it's actually a backup. It's like my B game. It's the, the person kept knocking me down, putting my shoulders on the mat. But all this comes from the fact that as a white belt, I was obsessed with Marcelo Garcia and Hoffa Mendez. Those are my two yeah. biggest idols. And like my dream, I always used to tell my first coach, I just want to be a mixture of those two. Hmm. He was like, you should just be you. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to be a mixture of those two. <laughs> hey, and that's a great Bernardo, mixture. <laughs> Bernardo jokes. He's like, you've done a really good job at that, but you've got some of your own stuff. And I'm like, nice. yeah. So that's, that's my game. But butterfly is something that I don't think anybody thinks I'm consistently playing all the time. And that's definitely my favorite guard, but it's more of like a gateway guard because you're not I'm sweeping from butterfly if they're on their knees, but typically if they're standing, it's to get the shin to shin, X, modified X, single X, enter the legs, whatever it might be. Um, so what are your go-to takedowns? So I have some wrestling experience, fortunately. I, I used to train with um, a high school wrestling team a little bit, not too much. I didn't wrestle for them. One of my great training partners, shout out to Wes Diaz, was the coach at uh, my high school. And Wes was also a purple belt while I was a blue belt. And he used to, even after I had graduated, he would take me to the wrestling classes. 
that you got to work on your wrestling. You got to work on your wrestling. So I was fortunate to train with a high school wrestling team on several occasions and my friend Wes, who ended up wrestling collegiately. Mm -hmm. And my go-to takedown, hands down, simple question is the ankle pick. The ankle ah. pick is like my baby. It's it's right. what I'm looking for a lot from guard, a lot from neutral positions when we're just both on our knees or they're in combat base, and definitely from standing. What are your thoughts on the state of jiu-jitsu right now? You know, it's becoming a little bit more mainstream, which is good. I think hmm. that obviously with everything going on, you know, people being a little bit more vocal and self-promoting, I, I personally love it. I think it's good for the sport. I think mm -hmm. any growth is good growth, even if it comes from a negative perspective. You know, some people criticize the guys that are more open on social media to call out challenges. But mm -hmm. ultimately, in the other day, all it's doing is bringing attention to the sport and more mainstream people. I mean, I have friends that have never trained jujitsu that know who Gordon Ryan is. That's amazing to me. Yeah. You know, they're like, yeah, oh, that, that really guy is. Gordon wants to go against Galvao. Or, they don't even know jujitsu. You know, five right. years ago, nobody would have known who that was. Like, absolutely nobody. None of my friends would have been mentioning names like that. But now they're becoming, I don't want to say household names, but it's getting to the point where that doesn't seem like it's not in the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. I personally think jujitsu is elevating tremendously thanks to guys from the Dan Hair Death Squad as far as bringing attention to the legs and promoting matches. And then mm -hmm. I think that it's headed in a good direction. And some people criticize that, but the technical level in jujitsu is it's out of this world. Even me, who just got a black belt, I'm still young. I'm 27. I'm like, man, I got to stay on my game. Because if I'm not studying, I'm going to get left behind. You look at what John Danaher has done. He's transcended jujitsu. And it's amazing what he's done because you have to know leg locks if you want to compete in no gi. And honestly, even gi now because the yeah. IBJJF kind of allows the reap and people yeah. use those positions that he's made so famous and popular and, and enhanced so much to do other things like toe holds and knee bars. And I remember when I first started, like leg locks were... I started in 2010, 2010, leg locks were like shunned. If you went for like an ankle lock with a higher belt, be careful. Now, I mean, it's the norm. You, people are consistently going for foot locks. I have white belts trying them on me. I'm not offended at all. I think it's, it's good. I think that they should learn early. You know, there's still some etiquette you want to have. You know, if, if you're rolling in the gi, I think you and your partner should explain, like, if you're going to allow heel hooks, especially if it's a lower belt. Because sometimes if you don't know what you're rolling with, you can get caught in something you may not have otherwise been caught in. So that's the only negative to it. But as long as you have good training partners, it's all safe. It's evolving so well. People are getting better than ever. And it's amazing to see. And I'm glad to be a small, small, small part of it and, and keep trying to elevate and try to translate that technique into my videos. So it sounds like, I mean, you pretty much told us that you're still experimenting quite a bit with jujitsu. What are you finding interesting that may not be totally implemented in your game as of late? Lately, I've been focusing again on leg locks. I had like a leg lock craze in uh, my purple belt phase where I was watching guys like Craig and Gordon and, and obviously Dan had that squad there household names for jiu-jitsu guys now and i was fascinated right. and i i wanted to get ahead of the curb and i spent a lot of time but now I'm, I'm focusing a lot on leg lock defense because i think as the leg mm. lock offense has excelled so much the defense has been playing catch-up but we're yeah. starting to see guys who are super good gordon ryan's actually an excellent example of somebody whose leg lock defense is on another level and, you know, people see him as a leg locker, but the majority of his fights have been won from chokes from the back and different submissions. And nobody can touch his legs. I mean, he has no fear when somebody's attacking his legs. Tom mm -hmm. DeBlas comes to mind. His leg lock defense is amazing. 
So I'm interested to know how those guys are so confident in their ability to evade leg locks because they are, they have absolutely yeah. no fear engaging. And, and so lately I've been focusing on that a lot and I've been trying to see, you know, body mechanics, watch footage, what's going on, what are they doing that, that makes it so easy. And I hope that in the near future, at some point, they, the Dan O'Hara guys put out some videos on leg lock defense because it's freaking amazing. Yeah, Gary has hey. a really good instructional on defending and it's, it's like, if you watch it, it's mind blowing. And I think a lot of people are focusing on the offense. You know, they, they want to learn to attack and, and sometimes the best defense is a good offense. But I think in this particular scenario where some people are just so ahead of the curb, it might pay dividends to just really understand how you defend properly so that you have that comfort in your offense, in your own offense. Now, earlier you brought up injuries. And your experience with that, it sounds like you have a great deal of experience with that, unfortunately. Too much. <laughs> what are some of your nagging injuries and pains and what do you do to mitigate them? My main nagging injury, and uh, it's been recurrent since I was 15 years old. I was actually wrestling with a friend and uh, it happened during a takedown. I started to develop sciatica. So I hurt my low back oh, yeah. and I got an MRI and it turned out I had a small bulge, not a herniation, but a bulge in my disc. I forget. I honestly forgot which one because I was so young and, and I was like, God, it's fine. And wow. so they told me at that age, they're like, you know, right now you just need to learn to stretch and to manage this pain, but it, it might be recurrent for the rest of your life, unless at some point you want to consider some type of surgery. So I know I have that and I've known I've had that since 15. So that's the main injury that I've dealt with literally, as I said, for the last I'm 27, 12 years. So I've fortunately found that there are a lot of things that you can do to benefit injuries. I'm not against modern medicine. I'm not against homeopathic remedies. I think that both of them can meet in the middle and have, you know, good solutions. So I do do a lot of yoga. I do do a lot of homeopathic things to help me with inflammation. Like I take my supplements, my fish oils, my creatine, and I do a lot of specific stretches to help stretch your IT band your hip mm. flexors, which all tighten up and cause that low back pain. Also, your psoas. So there's a, there's a lot of components. But basically, I have a stretching regimen that I do every day before class and every day after class or every morning and every night, one or the other. I've done that for probably nine years. So that keeps my low back at bay. But to this day, I'll still have sciatica flare-ups where I have to take two, three days off. And you know, my wife makes fun of me because I look like an old man. And it's probably not healthy at 27 to be walking. Like I can barely walk or lift my legs. Mm -hmm. Then it goes away, you know, with what I'm doing. And I, I think at some point I'll have to face the inevitable, go get another MRI and, and see the damage. But I don't plan on doing that until I'm like 35. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, my main injuries have been a partial UCL tear on my elbow. And the other one has been two partial tears on my MCL. So it was the same yeah. leg. One of them happened as a blue belt. I was actually crab riding a guy and he stood up a big 200 pound guy. And I went to kick his legs out from underneath him and my foot yeah. slipped up. If you can imagine that. And basically my leg, like my foot went like past my ear and it popped <sighs> my MCL. That was bad. That was like 12 weeks off. Fortunately, oh, no surgery. Yeah. The MCL rep uh, repairs itself really well. And then as a brown belt, that same exact ligament got destroyed again. So those are like the four main injuries, low back, double MCL tears, and then UCL. And other than that, it's just the day-to-day the -day pains. It sounds like some potential videos that you can release for us is a warm-up video and a post-training video. That would for be awesome. Sure. The, the nose break was pretty gnarly too, but that happened quickly. And like I was training like two days later and I didn't think anything wow. of it. And so wow. I just continued to train and that one caught up to me if I had to reflect the most because that one started to cause internal health issues where, I mean, I had to get tons of different diagnostic testings just to make sure like they're like, okay, I was having so many sinus infections. They wanted to make sure I 
heart and have some type of immune issue. And then it turned out that everything was happening because my nose had just blocked my sinuses. It just had completely blocked my sinuses. I had to have that surgery. And unfortunately, they did it all. And everything's been great since. I just got that done this August of 2020. I hear great things about it too. Well, number one, it's really interesting that it somehow exacerbated infections. And then number two, I would have thought that it would have impacted your sleep quite a bit. And then all kinds of bad things happen when you can't sleep. It didn't start to get bad until my wife and I have three dogs. So I, I have an allergy to dogs, which is so dumb that we have three, but she's a dog trainer. So I'm constantly yeah, around gonna... them. That started to catch up with me. And it turned out that everything was from an anatomical injury that I had had from jujitsu. And I told my wife, this is so crazy. Like this injury from five years ago has caught up to me so badly. So and bad. I don't like wow. surgery. So for me to have finally went through and got it, I'm really happy I did. And I tell people now, if you have issues with your septum or you've destroyed your, your nose and you're suffering from any type of sinus infections or bronchitis, go look at it because it changed my life. Like it mm. legitimately changed my life. And so it's worth it. it. It sucks. It was a terrible, you know, recovery for two to four weeks. But man, it, it's night and day, the difference. Granted, mine was severe. Some people just have small deviations, but mine was really severe. And it's definitely well worth looking into. And it's actually an injury that you might not assume you have from jujitsu because somebody's cross choking you and you're tucking your chin, which is how it happened mm. to me. And they're mm. trying to drop their wrist. It's smushing mm. that cartilage and it can easily damage it. Whether you have a full break or not, it can damage it. You know, if you're, there's a bow and arrow and it's wow. on your face, rear naked choke on your face, guillotine on your face, I'd bet a ton of high level guys have it. It just isn't bad for them yet. Yeah, I've heard that over and over. I can only breathe out of one side, you know, always has, you know, one side. And everyone's like, dude, you got to get that surgery. It changed your life. I couldn't imagine being able to breathe through both and have that full. Yeah. Joe Rogan talked about it from his uh, martial arts career. I think he got like punched so much or grappling and he had a really deviated septum as well. Yeah. And he, he actually persuaded me. I, my friend sent me the clip. My roommate from college is a nurse practitioner. And he was like, listen to Joe, bro. Go get the surgery. And, and Joe was like, night and day. It's so much better. So much better. I'm a big Joe Rogan podcast fan. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. You know what? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try it. And so I finally did it. Well, Aaron, let's talk about your two instructionals on BJJ Fanatics. Can you expand on those? Yeah. Initially making them, I was a little, Bernardo said to make them and I was a little hesitant. I was like, why don't I wait till I get my block? But he's like, oh, you're a good instructor. Just make them. And so I put a lot of planning into it. He knows I'm, I'm super detail oriented. So each one took a, about a month of planning. So where the first thing that I did was write down the basis of, of the instructional, which one is half butterfly guard and one is leg drag. And then I wanted to find a way to make it very cohesive because to me, I had to find Thinking of, from a business perspective, I was like, what's my value proposition to why somebody would want to buy my instructional when they can just watch me on YouTube? So I wanted to offer something special for that. And I think that the main differentiating factor is that it's cohesive, it's structured, and everything is there and it moves from step one to two to three to four to 15 to 25 to 30. And it's a systematic approach versus on my YouTube, I think a segregating thing I do is I put up clusters of like five videos on one position to try to help people get as much as they can. But I can't just focus every video on that position for the rest of my YouTube because I got to branch out to try to grow it. And so with the instructionals, it gave me a place where I could do six hours straight of one position and I could start. So I have a very conceptual approach to the way I teach. So I could start with the underlying control concepts and principles that you need for those positions. And then I could elaborate on that. And so again, one is half butterfly guard, one is the leg drag, 
And I think that the, the benefit of both is they're just super cohesive. And I was really thrilled with the way they came out. I was super, super thrilled. And, and they've done really well. Hmm. I was ecstatic. I was super nervous, like I said, because I wasn't a black belt. And again, you know, I, I've won good tournaments. I've medaled at plenty of IBJJF stuff, at adult brown belt, and, you know, done fight to wins and had great results. But I was like, I haven't won Worlds, Bernardo. I'm not a black belt. Like, I, I need to like... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't make one. He's like, man, you're a good teacher. Just make right. them. I was like, okay, I'll make them. For the white belts out there, can you just give an overview of what the half butterfly even is? So the half butterfly guard, that's a, that's a good question. The half butterfly guard is kind of a hybrid of a butterfly guard and half guard. And so the position comes from when you're on your side, like in a traditional half guard, and your bottom leg is still locking their leg there. But instead of clasping your legs together, you're going to bring your top leg inside as a butterfly hook. And so from that position, you're going to have the ability predominantly to sweep your opponents when they're smashing you. So I think the biggest benefit of the half butterfly guard is it allows you to have plenty of sweep options from arguably the worst position in jujitsu, which is when the opponent on top gets the underhook and the cross face and starts to smash you with shoulder pressure. The best sweeps from that position come from there because your opponent's very heavy towards your head and that allows them to be light towards their lower body. And in doing so, it gives you the opportunity to sweep them with a butterfly sweep. And so when you learn to use the half butterfly, it makes it very hard for them to knee cut because your butterfly hook stops that knee cut. And for most white belts, a lot of them get their guard passed with knee cuts. So that's a huge benefit. And secondary to that, it allows you to sweep your opponent over. So that's how I, I developed half butterfly guard purely because I have no shame in saying as a blue belt, I competed the most, all the local tournaments. I mean, I probably did 30, 40 tournaments and I had great, great results towards the end of my blue belt. I mean, I was winning them all, but in the beginning it was rough. And a lot of it was like, <laughs> I had all the good steps. I, I felt like I had better technique, but when I got put in that specific position under hook and cross face, I just didn't have an answer. I, I always did flashier things as a blue belt, like single X and Brembolos and reverse deal heave inversion. And when somebody nullified those and forced me into an old school half guard smash pass position, I had no answer. And I just was watching a bunch of tape. And, you know, I started to put my butterfly hook in because I had a good butterfly sweep and then kept doing it, kept doing it. And now eight years later, it's like a staple in my game. It, wow. It's actually the sweep that typically when I do it, most of my training partners are the most amazed with because they're like man you swept me so easily and i'm like your weight was completely forward and mm. that was the only reason i swept you and then furthermore if their weight isn't forward it allows you to get underneath your opponents and these days with leg entanglements it's one of the best ways to enter the legs from a half guard so that's another benefit and even to white belts who are just experimenting with basic leg locks or just trying to understand the positions it's a good place to start to see them from something they may be familiar with which is half guard so speaking of white belt, if you had to be a white belt again, what would you do differently? <sighs> Man, if I had to be a white belt again, I may be a little bit more cautious with mm. how hard I trained. Because mm. I think a lot of the injuries I experienced came from being very, for lack of a better term, egotistical, spazzy, white and blue belt. People look at me and like, oh, you're a nice guy and this and that. I'm like, dude, if you saw me as a white and blue belt, you wouldn't want to roll with me. I was totally crazy. Like I was completely nuts. I just wanted to go as hard as humanly possible. I was mean. I was spazzy. I would go back and I would try to refine my earlier stages more. I would try to focus and hone in on more conceptual approaches, maybe not go crazy and, and be Mr. Cool and roll with anybody from 200 to 300. I had a training partner who was 350 pounds Jeez. and I would roll with him regularly. Oh and looking gosh. back, you know, I felt bad saying no, especially as a white belt. 
So I would always do it, but man, I feel like it, it would have helped me long-term because longevity is everything to just maybe put my ego away and said, no, man, I don't want to roll with you or not go as crazy and try as hard and uh, just kind of accept like, hey, I'm just a white belt. People are going to smash me. I, I had a huge problem with that and didn't get me anywhere. I just got <laughs> smashed worse. Try to focus on the technique and, and try not to put so much pressure on yourself. Another thing you kind of touched on earlier too, and one of the things I wanted to ask was, can you tell us a time or times that you wanted to quit? I've definitely considered it 100%. I mean, there's been different things from relationships to careers to just downright discouragement that have made me want to quit. And even as late as, as Brown Belt, not fully quit as a Brown, you know, as a Brown, I was just thought about slowing down and, and kind of saying, you know, I'm just going to be a hobbyist and train twice a week. But fortunately, I didn't do that. But I definitely as a white belt when I so I started in Nogi when I was 15. That guy that elevator swept me over his head, grabbed my wrist and did it. And it was a Nogi gym. And I did Nogi 15, 16, 17. And when I went to college as an 18 year old was the first time I ever put on a gi. And when I started in the gi after the first few months, I almost felt like I wasn't making as much progress as I had expected for myself. These all came from my own expectations. So there was disappointment. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about quitting. I was like, maybe I should go do another sport or maybe I should just go, you know, lift more or whatever it might be. And fortunately, I never did because I had such a good coach who always believed in me. That goes back to a question you asked me earlier about a good academy. Sometimes I think the best academy might not be the one with all the killers or be the one with the, the toughest training for certain people, because 90% mm -hmm. of the people that train are hobbyists, they're not trying to win worlds. And so for that particular group, which is the vast majority, the most important thing is to be happy where you train. Because if I wasn't happy, and I didn't have a coach who was super motivational, encouraging, and nice and polite, and, and helped me keep working through them, I would have quit. You know, if I had a really like coach that was really tough and was like, no, you, you know, just, just, uh, if you want to leave then leave, I probably would have left. I probably would have been like, yeah, I'm going to leave. But my coach is like, no, man, you have a lot of talent, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. And he just talked me through all these things. And, and I was fortunate to keep going. And so that was a time as a, a mid white belt that I really was just considering if I should devote my time to something else. And then, you know, actually at Bernardo's as a, a brown belt, there was multiple occasions where I considered, again, not quitting fully, but just taking a step back and training less so I could focus more on my career. I started working, you know, over 80 hours every two weeks. So, you know, like 50 hour weeks growing with BJ Fanatics. I was also managing the academy. I had that job, which I was working, you know, 20 hours a week. I was also teaching. So, I mean, my days were grueling. I was waking up at eight I was working from eight to 11. I would go train and open the academy from 1130 to 130. I would go home and I would work from like two to five. I would go back and open the academy from 530 to 830, train, wow. teach, manage. Then I would go home and I would work from like nine to 12 a.m. And I had no time for my fiance at the time. And mm. our relationship, you know, it was tough. You know, you got to put time into everything. And so I was having trouble balancing. And I really considered, you know, either quitting teaching or quitting the training sessions or something. I was like, something's got to give. And again, I had a great coach, Bernardo, who noticed that. And he told me, he's like, Bernardo's really good at reading people. And he said, you're overwhelmed, Darren. I'm going to, you don't have to open the school in the morning. You don't have to, you know, and he's like, don't worry about it. And so he would take one thing away and I had breathing room. And then wow. as BJ Fanatics grew and my relationship grew, planning a wedding, he would always notice like, you're overwhelmed. 
don't manage the academy at all if you don't want to. He would always give me the choice. Like, if you want to, then do it. I don't want to take something away from you. But if you don't need to do it, then don't. And so I'd be like, no, you know what? I don't. So then I stopped managing the academy way more, way more time. And then he, you know, I, I'm still growing with the uh, BGJ Fanatics. My wife opened a business. I was helping with that. He's like, Aaron, you've got a lot going on in your life. You're growing. If you don't want to teach anymore or you just want to teach the kids, you don't have to. And then Ultimately, it led to the point where I was teaching a lot less. I got to focus on my YouTube. And again, it came down to a coach that recognized that Mm -hmm. and was able to help me with that and say, hey, you know, I know you love to train. Let's find a way to make it so that you can train. Let's work through it. And so I did. And man, brown belt, like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, it was the toughest belt for me because so many things changed in my life and so many different things. You know, if Bernardo didn't help me through all that, I mean, who knows? I might have just been training twice a week and, and stopped competing, but I didn't. So that's super important. That's a sign of a great leader too, an entrepreneur for him to identify that one of his employees, they're maxed out. Yeah. He's a really good, he's really good at recognizing that. And and as a friend too, he's taught me so much, like, you know, don't focus so much on trying to do everything okay and and make money, focus on a couple things, do your best Mm -hmm. at them. And if, if short term you lose income or you lose, you know, some of your responsibilities, long term, it will pay dividends, literally. Mm -hmm. And so mm-hmm. those are lessons I've literally learned from him. And with my wife and I's dog training business and with all the people I manage, I constantly reiterate that. I'm like, look, mm-hmm. if I see, you know, you're going through too much, it's okay to take one step back to take three steps forward. And bringing it back to jujitsu, that's a concept that I now implement a lot in jujitsu. You know, we're constantly taught in jujitsu, sweep, pass, mount, choke, or take the back. I constantly sweep, pass, mount, can't get anything. I go back to neon belly you know, can't get anything. I go back to guard so that I can pass a little better so that they might expose. And so I've taken a couple steps back to ultimately catch the submission. And it's crazy how there's parallels between, you know, life and jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's important. It's sometimes you got to just tone it down to get back up and keep going even better than you were before. Can you tell us about something that you witnessed that was really cool or really special from a student of yours? There's been a lot of things, a lot of things that come to mind. I think that one of the coolest things that I witnessed, I'm going to get flack for this one, is uh, my friend Ty, who's on all my YouTube videos that a lot of my followers know. He's a blue belt. Ty, when he got there, had, he's like, I think he's like a black belt karate or something. He had an MMA fight and he did nogi. And he talked to Bernardo and, and he said, look, I have a lot of experience. You could only do the advanced classes at his gym or intermediate if he had two stripes or more mm-hmm. and so he was like can you please give me two stripes and you know he talked to bernardo he said i've been training for this long so bernardo gave him two stripes off the bat and he did the class and we all watched and analyzed we knew we were going to look and see if he deserved it because mm-hmm. we hadn't seen him roll and basically we were like okay he doesn't have traditional jiu-jitsu experience i hate mm-hmm. to say it about ty but he didn't have traditional jiu-jitsu <laughs> experience so mm-hmm. bernardo took the stripes back you know, after he hadn't really given them, he's like, look, you, you're not, I can't give you two stripes. He's right. like, you either mm-hmm. start fresh and you, you earn them or it's just not for you, man. And I remember Ty leaving that day. We talked and he was really mad. He was like, yeah, man, this sucks. Like, you know, I just got told that I am not at even a two stripe white belt level. And he has all this martial arts experience. I think I told him, I'm probably butchering the story, but I was like, you should stick with it because you could be good, especially if you do other martial arts. And that like started our friendship. He came back and he got two stripes quicker than anyone else at the school. Because hmm. at the time we were doing frequency cards, which we don't do as much where you get an X for every class you do. I think it was like 80 classes for two stripes or something like that. And, and man, he did them like this. He did every single class on the schedule. I was like, that's really incredible 
And so something further about Ty, because he jokes around a lot at our school. He's kind of known as like the school clown and he's funny. He likes to mess with people. He's kind of inspiring because he doesn't even compete and he trains like a full-time athlete. He does every single jujitsu class we have for the most part. And I've always wow. asked him like, why don't you compete? And he's like, I just do it for the love, man. I don't, I don't even care to compete. And so to me, that's inspiring. I'm like, man, that's a good attitude. Cause there's been times where I solely train hard to compete. Then I think about it. I'm like, man, I'm doing all, I'm killing myself just to compete. And I could lose in a second. I should just be doing this because I want to do it. Going back to like my philosophy that I tell people and seeing that was inspiring. And, and there's been so many others. There's been so many other things. We, we have a great group. Speaking of other practitioners, other practitioners that you admire and why? There's so many, man. There's so many. Marcelo <laughs> is the first one that comes to mind. Marcelo, yeah. I've always idolized Marcelo for his demeanor on and off the mat, his technique, his skill, his smile. My old coach, Khan, I admire him for so many different reasons. Bernardo, I admire Bernardo because he just works so hard, man. Like he, he just puts his heart into every single role, even to this day. I admire anybody who's achieved greatness in jiu-jitsu and it can go all the way from Andre Galvao to Gordon Ryan. It's funny mm -hmm. when I see like them beefing or something, cause I love them both. And I think they're yeah, both amazing. Same. Yeah. Anybody who does well, like I love Craig Jones. Like I, I got trained with Nicholas Mergali, all of them, but if it yeah. went to a technical level, the guy that I've always idolized the most has been Marcelo. To me, Marcelo is like, man, he's untouchable. Yeah, because he's just such a cool, good person. I've been able to meet him a ton of times. He's coached wow. my matches and uh, I don't know him wow. that well. You know, I, I trained under one of his black belts and uh, he gave me my brown belt with my old coach. He had been he was supposed to like come out to Florida or do seminars and stuff. Things were going on. And so my coach like, do you mind if I can give him his brown belt with your blessing? And he's like, of course. And like, he's just such a nice guy, man. Like wow, what, what you honor. see is what you get with him, too. Yeah, that's the guy. What are things that interest you outside of jujitsu? I see one of the things that you're involved in and that you've mentioned a couple times on the podcast is the canine business that you're a co-founder of, that your wife is the founder of, correct? Yes, my wife is a, uh, a dog trainer and she wanted to start a, a dog training business. Unfortunately, with the, the skill set I have and what I work with, I was able to build her website. I set up a bunch of advertisements, cool. analytics, A-B tests and grew it to a point where, you know, she had a 30 person waiting list at one point. Wow. And it's inspiring to see her work because she's taught me so much. I mean, she wants me to help train the dogs physically, but I'm still way too intimidated to do that. I'm a white belt there. I don't to do it. <laughs> and, and your but, allergies uh, too, right? Yeah, that's not good. I, those, those I just got to live with. But I'm definitely a white belt with training dogs. But it's inspiring to see how much she puts into it. But furthermore, she doesn't solely put in effort into training the dog. She's constantly studying, just like a jiu-jitsu athlete. Like anybody who achieves anything great is constantly working, constantly studying, constantly evolving. And she's constantly doing that. And it comes from the goodness of her heart. You know, unfortunately, when her and I first started dating and, and we were in college, we lived with my little sister who is... I should know this or I'm going to get in trouble. I believe she's four years younger than me or three years younger than me. And, you know, she was a victim of a very bad dog bite from a, uh, a dog that we were fostering. And so from that moment on, my wife was like, I want to know why that happened. I want to understand it because they're great friends. And so wow. she just started reading, started researching, got opportunities to train. She was the head dog trainer at a prominent pet co in the greater Boston area. She got all her certifications and then she approached me and said, let's start this business. So I, I did. And fortunately, she's trained tons of dogs and done well but what's even more important is she trains a lot of dogs that are near euthanization wow. so oftentimes you know dogs are returned to pounds or whatever it may be because they're they have 
some sort of reactivity, some sort of what could be misconceived as aggression. And Bruna does a great job at working with those dogs. She's worked with several rescues in the greater Boston area where she helps rehabilitate dogs, rehome dogs. And she also, one of the rescues we work with requires that her dog adopters do classes with her. And she constantly does it. She gives evaluations. And, and so she, it's inspiring to see. And awesome. I'm happy to be a part of it because I've always loved dogs. We have three. Mm-hmm. I've always had dogs growing up and we constantly have different dogs in the house. I mean, it's like a zoo. It's absolutely <laughs> crazy. We, we just had a dog that uh, was going to be euthanized, a husky, because it had been rehomed six times and was mm. extremely vocal and had a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And yeah. my wife was like, no. And she ran over and picked up the dog, trained it for three weeks for absolutely wow. no compensation, just out of the goodness in her heart, found a home, rehomed it. Did free lessons with the home she brought it to, and the dog is wow. super happy. And Amazing. that's just one of the many. Yeah, it's, it's and the, really nice. the name of the Inspiring. business is Rise Canine, correct? Yeah, Rise Canine Dog Training. How did you learn to tie your belt? It's funny. I didn't know how to tie my belt till I was a purple belt. If you really want to know, that's an interesting. <laughs> I, that's a good I hear that so people. often, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question to ask people because I asked my old coach Con, and he's going to be mad at me for saying this. I was like, "How do you tie your belt?" He's like, "God oh, doesn't matter because Marcella just double knots it or whatever." I'm like, "Really?" And, so I would always do that. And then one day when I got my purple, I got like a cool, nicer, expensive $50 belt. And I was like, I have to learn nice. how to tie this right. So one of my friends, I believe it was Taj, who had the old judo knot. And he used to tie a yeah. seamless knot. Wow. And I, I saw it in a picture or something. It's it's a foggy memory. I was like, Taj, how do you do that knot? Like, that looks so good. Mine looks so ugly. And so he taught me. And then that was it. I was like, okay, this is the knot I'm doing. And now, <laughs> since I do that fancy judo knot, tons of people ask me. Because it's yeah, the seamless one. It's another Tons video Aaron has to make for us. Yeah, yeah, right. I've made one actually for my friends at the academy. Nice. And now it's second nature. I do it really quickly. But man, in the beginning, it was like more complicated than any technique I had done. So hard. Aaron, I want to be respectful of your time here. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? I want to give a shout out to you. I think you have a great podcast. I was listening to your podcast with Denny Prokopos, um, John Thomas. I think it's good. I think you're on something. I think it's it's cool to have that outlet. I'm a huge podcast fan, so I love awesome. to listen to them. So thank you for having me. And uh, I hope to see your podcast grow and continue to grow. Thanks so much, man. So if everyone wants to get a hold of you or get more information about you, your instructionals, we're going to add all the links, obviously, to all your stuff. Where can they get more information in terms of your socials, etc.? My Instagram is at abenz239. I don't really do as much on there. I'm not very social media savvy, but my YouTube is one of the best places to reach out to me. I try to respond to every single comment on my YouTube, wow. but every message I get that I get from uh, social media, I also try to respond to. So Instagram is at abenz239. And then my YouTube is Aaron Benzerham BJJ. And if you're ever around or at Bernardo's, hit me up. I train with everybody who comes through. All right, everyone. I am Adolfo Fronda, and thanks for watching listening for another week. See you guys next time. And again, Aaron, thanks so much for your time, man. Appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank you so much, man.